We're in a new series called Refined by Fire, you know. Uh, sometimes an image says a thousand words. So that's what we're talking about as we're seeking to engage in our world. We've, we've talked about the, the Sermon on the Mount, characteristics of people who follow God. We talked about the transforming power of Jesus Christ in our life. And this time, I want us to talk about the life that we ought to live in regards to all of that. I got a quote for you. I got from TikTok, right? Before you uh, jump to conclusions, I do not have a TikTok, right? Uh, Instagram apparently plays these things, so I just, I, I was scrolling through it, and this came up, and I liked it, so uh, I wrote it down, right? There's a quote of a man saying this, my father walked to work every day of his life. I have the privilege of driving Cadillac. My son drove a Mercedes. My grandson will find himself, that's Mercedes, by the way, right? My son drove a Mercedes. My grandson will find himself walking again. Why? Because hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. Right? It is a series about us being in a generation and a culture of hard times. And the result of a believer in the midst of fire, should be strong in our character, in our resolve, in our foundation, in our strength. And this series is a series of a letter written by the apostle Peter, okay? Peter was a fisherman who was made one of the original disciples of Jesus, who turned leader of the church and who turned evangelist to the world. He wrote this letter while he was in Rome doing a massive persecution of believers by the Emperor Nero in 64 AD. Christianity was not accepted as a recognized religion and thus persecuted, broke out, persecution broke out against Christians from Jewish authorities all the way up to the Roman government. Christianity was seen as an affront to the cultural order of that time because Christians refused to bend the knees to the cultural norms of sex, to the cultural norms of government, to the cultural norms of family, to the cultural norms of power. And so it was persecuted. And in the midst of these hard times, these times of difficulties, Peter writes this letter to the Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire to encourage them that now is the season to grow. Now is the season to mature. Now is the season to stand up. Now is not the season to hide, to be quiet, to be silenced. Now is the season that your faith ought to be proven and refined by fire. And today, in our days, the same purpose is true. Because believers today, we live in a culture where we have the increasing breakdown of the family unit. The Christian idea of family is, is an affront to the cultural standards of family. We have the rise and the eradication of all things sex and gender related. The image of God is distorted, bent to the whim of whatever societal cultural norms and philosophy prevalent to our days. There's an opposing world philosophy where once Man was held accountable to his actions by an almighty God. Now, man is beholden to the voice and will of the woke mob. Once again, like in the days of Peter, we find ourselves a generation fighting against the eradication of all biblical Christianity. And because we follow the God-man Jesus, 
Peter writes to us to this day, telling us, now is the season of maturity. Now is the season of growth. Now is the season not to be silenced. Now is the season to mature. So if Jesus Christ is who he says he is, then during this context in which we live, we are called to a season of maturity. You are called to mature. You are called to grow. These are hard times which create strong men because we have lived through good times that have created weaker men. We find ourselves in this season. And so my hope and my prayer through this series is not only do you have concepts, but you have the conviction of how to live as a Christian in our culture. How to stand up and grow, to be mature, to speak, to not be silent. Today, two questions. How are we to live as Christians and how do we have the power to do so? How are we to live as Christians and how do we have the power to do so? First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. If you wonder, is it possible for PT to write a whole message on one word? The answer is yes. I have written a whole message on one word, okay? And that's how beautiful God's word is. It has so much nuance and power that with just one word, we can see things move. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. How are we to live as Christians in this world? Verse 1 says, as Peter writes, he writes to the elect who are exiled, who are strangers in this world. Peter is writing to a bunch of Christians telling them, we are strangers in this land. Oftentimes the Greek word and the English translation, it has, um, it has different nuances that we don't get. So when we hear the word stranger, we hear the word exile, we're thinking we're being cast out of a kingdom. But the actual word in the Greek, the better translation for that word stranger, that word exile, is the word resident aliens. What Peter is saying is that to all of you who are resident aliens in this world, okay, resident aliens, what does that mean? That means you're not a tourist. You're not a tourist. You're here on a resident passport. You got a green card. You're a functional part of society. You have a job here. You pay your taxes. You have Neighbors, you have relationship with your neighbors, you have friends, you've made work, you know the language, you know the business, you know the customs, you know the society. You are not a tourist, you're a resident alien. What else is a resident alien? A resident alien is not a citizen, it's not a citizen. You're still a citizen of your original home country. And even though you are here, you still stick out as a sore thumb because your values and the values of your, home, of your host country does not align. Your customs don't align. You're still different because you are a resident alien. And Peter is using the word exile, stranger, resident alien to make a point about who you are in this world. You're here on passport, which means you're not expected to stay here forever. Christians are strangers. Christians are exiles. Christians are resident aliens because we are not tourists, but we are here. We engage in our culture. We engage in our world. We engage with our neighbors. We pay our taxes. 
We live in our cities. We love our neighbors. But we stick out like a sore thumb because the values in which we stand for, the fundamental foundation which we are rooted in, comes opposed to our culture, comes opposed to our society. And so we begin this picture. How are we supposed to live as Christians here in this world? Peter says you are to live it as resident aliens. What implications does that have if you are a resident alien here? That means this, you are, one, you are a pilgrim. You are on a journey. Meaning that life, and I think you know this, it means that life that you live never fully feels satisfying. Doesn't it? it the implication of being a resident alien, a stranger, an exile in this world, it means that our life will never feel as fully satisfied as we want it. It just doesn't fit right. There will be an emptiness and a struggle all throughout your Christian life. Why? Because this is not your home. There's something wrong. You always feel like there's something missing because this is not your home. The best example, and it's kind of crude of an example. I'm going to give you an example because I think you guys understand this example, right? The way you feel like something is at home, it's, it's, like a, it's like a toilet seat, right? No matter where you go, whatever toilet seat you sit on, it doesn't feel right. Doesn't it? It's not, it doesn't feel like it's home, right? Your butt feels like it doesn't, I mean, it can be the nicest hotel area, but when you sit down, it does not feel like this is home, right? Your, your, your body knows it, your heart knows it, and some of us, when we go camping, we just hold it in. We don't even want to go because this is not home. But what you know, you know the moment your butt lays down on its right toilet, this is home. This is home, right? In the same way, I know that's crude, but here, that's the best way I got, Okay. In the best and exact same example, we are not ultimately home. Because home means this. Home means that we are in a place where everything fits the deepest longing of our souls. Home is a place where everything fits the deepest longing of our souls. Complete rest, complete love. We are exiles, we are strangers. That's why no matter how much you chase... No matter how much you work, no matter how far up the ladder of success you get, you know you're not satisfied. No matter how many relationships you're in, you know you're still not satisfied. No matter how much of a cycle you go through in life, you know you're not satisfied. And the reason that itch, the reason that that, that feeling is there is because you are not made for this world. This is a broken world, a world of death, a world driven by it moving towards it. We were not made for that. This is not home. See, if you're not a believer, if you don't believe in God or the Bible, right, you believe that this world is all there is. You don't know why you're not satisfied. You have no reason. You have no foundation to hold you to tell you why. Why am I not satisfied? There are many nights when you stay up, I'm sure, and you're wondering to yourself, why are things not working out? Why am I still chasing? Why am I still longing? Why are things not fully making me feel great? Even if you catch it, even if you got something, you celebrate for a day, you celebrate for two days, but eventually what happens? You're still unsatisfied. See, if you don't believe there is a God or you don't believe the Bible is real and the world's all there is, right, why do you feel that way? Because if, if, if we've been evolved to fit in this world, to adapt to this environment, why are we constantly chasing to fill some void of completion to our soul? 
See, if you don't know God or the Bible, you have no idea why you feel this way. But let me tell you why you feel this way. This author, C.S. Lewis, he wrote this. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfactions for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger? Well, there is such thing as food for the baby to eat. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there is such a thing as water for the duck to swim. Men feel sexual desire? Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find myself a desire in myself, a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. If you find yourself in yourself a desire which no experience in this world has satisfied, then the most probable explanation for that is you were not meant for this world. You were meant for another. We are born with the desire for true fellowship with God. The thing that you're chasing after, the thing that you want your heart to feel to be filled with, that you think money, power, sex, drugs, materials, relationship is going to fill. That thing that you're chasing after, what you're really chasing after is true fellowship with the living God. The Bible in Psalm 90 says this, he is our dwelling place, he is our home. You are strangers in this world, and you know it, because somewhere deep down in your heart, you're not satisfied. No house is big enough. No car is good enough. No job is perfect enough. No relationship is great enough. You're constantly chasing, constantly wanting, thinking the bank account is big enough, that my car is nice enough, that my relationship is great enough, everything will work out. You chase and you chase, but you never feel like it fits right. You know why? Because you're not home. That's what it means. That's what Peter is saying. You're exiles. You're resident aliens. You're strangers. That's the implication here. But the second implication is this. Not only are you not home, but the second implication is being a resident alien, a stranger, is that you are not withdrawn from the place. You're not withdrawn and you're not assimilated or ac and accommodated to the place. You're not withdrawn from it, meaning you're not separate. You're not, you're not some sort of weird cult excluding yourself from the world around you creating some sort of new system of life and deal. You're with the world. You're engaged in it. You're, in, you're paying your taxes. You're with people. You're not withdrawn from the world, but at the same time, you are not assimilated or accommodated to that place because the source of your identity, your security is Christ. Let me explain what I mean by that. There's something deeper that drives you, a resident alien, you who do not belong to this world. You are not driven by the identity of this world because most of the time if you ask people, hey, what's your identity? I'm Vietnamese, I'm Chinese, I'm uh, African-American, I'm Mexican, I'm whatever, right? You identify, some, some people identify themselves by their culture. Some people identify by themselves by their relationship. I'm so-and-so's husband, I'm so-and-so's wife, I'm so-and-so's boyfriend, I'm so-and-so's girlfriend. You identify yourself by relationship because the relationship gives you identity. The relationship gives you security. The relationship gives you a sense of worth and value. Sometimes you identify yourself with your career. I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I'm an engineer. I'm a pharmacist. I'm a teacher. Right? I'm a pastor. You identify yourself with your career. But here, with Jesus, with Jesus, the implication of a resident alien is with Jesus, you're still Vietnamese, you're still Asian, you're still Chinese, but you are an Asian, Vietnamese, Chinese, Cambodian, whatnot, that is deeply rooted and fundamentally driven 
by Christ. Your identity is not your culture. Your identity is deeply rooted and fundamentally driven by who Christ is. In the same way, you could be a lawyer, doctor, engineer, pharmacist, teacher, whatnot, but your identity is not driven by those jobs. Your identity is driven by and rooted by who Christ is in your life. You are a lawyer that is deeply rooted and fundamentally driven by God. You are a doctor who is deeply rooted and fundamentally driven by Jesus. You are a pharmacist who is deeply rooted and fundamentally driven by this. In a marriage, you're not driven and secured and um, identified in your marriage. You are a marriage that is now deeply rooted, fundamentally driven by Christ. That our marriage is not defined how we feel about each other. Our marriage is defined by what we do in light of who Christ is. You guys get me? Right? You're not withdrawn from the world. You, you are you're engaged in it, but you are not accommodated or assimilated to it. That's what it means to be a resident alien. That's what it means to be a stranger. That's what it means to be an exile. And that's what Peter is saying about the Christians in this time. So what are the applications here? What is the application of a resident alien, of a stranger, of an exile? What am I to do? Now listen up. This is very clear. You are to learn the principles and truth that Jesus calls you to live by. And you are to live by them humbly and, and unapologetically. You are to know and understand the truth, principles, and doctrines in which Jesus Christ has called forth from you to live by. And to live by them humbly before others and unapologetically before others. That means this. Conduct your dating life in a way that honors God. In your chastity and in your purity. Not follow the sexual ethics that is brought down or determined or taught by our culture and our society. And I'm, t- I'm not telling you to practice sexual ethics just simply because, you know, like it's, it's commanded or God does this or he doesn't love you. He calls you to practice sexual ethics Because he wants to lift you up. He wants to remind you, you do not belong in this world. So why are you assimilating to it? This is not your home. So why do you make it as if it is? The world that I have for you, the home that I have created for you, place where you belong, my people bring flourishing. And flourishing comes when we understand sex for what it is meant to be. How are we to live out strangers, exiles, and resident aliens here? Live out your role as a husband and a wife, a father and a mother under the house, under a house that honors God and not let it be dictated by what the culture tells you a father and mother should look like or a husband and wife should look like. Live out your role as a man of God and a woman of God unapologetically in light of the reconstruction of all things gender in our world today. God has a role for you. God has a role for each one of you. And he's called you to step into that. He's called you to deal with it. He's called you to wrestle with it. He called you to rise up in it. It does not matter. Listen, I understand how what you feel is important. I don't want to dictate that and take that away. What you feel is important. But in light of who Jesus is, what are you going to do about those feelings? How you address the world with your sexuality as a man, as a woman, is important. 
But in light of who Jesus is, what are you going to do about it? What does it mean to be a resident alien, a stranger in exile? How are we to live by this humbly and unapologetically? Stand up and speak God's truth, even if it costs you your reputation by being canceled in today's age. The biggest issue that we have sometimes among brothers and sisters, but I'll talk to the brothers first because that's the one problem about being brothers is that you're passive. Our passiveness keeps us from speaking truth when it should be spoken. We stay silent when God calls us to speak. We let things slide because we don't want to ruffle feathers or shake any boats or, or trees. We stay silent. And we let the truth disappear. Because we're afraid of offending. We're afraid of hurting. We're afraid of rusting. But you're not afraid of dishonoring your God. You are a resident alien. You don't belong here. You are to speak the truth humbly and unapologetically. You are to care for the poor, the widows, the orphans, the underrepresented, the unborn, the foreigners, in such a scandalous way that goes above and beyond any normal expectation because we believe in the Imago Dei. Do you know that human rights, every human right group today got their idea from Christianity. Christianity was the only one who fought for the idea of humans made in the image of God. Therefore, they had the rights. They had, therefore, they're equal before everyone's eyes. Every, no matter how secular, no matter how liberal, no matter how right-wing, no matter how conservative, whatever, every human rights group got their fundamental truth from Christianity. It's born out of this. It didn't just pop up in their mind. Christians were the only one, were the first ones who declared humans have rights because they were made in the image of God. And everyone's been piggybacking off of that. And we, as Christians, by the way, gave up on that. You gave up on the very fundamentals that is in your scripture simply because you forget. We are strangers. We are resident aliens. We don't belong here. And therefore, our way of living is to speak and to live the truth and the principles of Jesus Christ Humbly and unapologetically. Do you know that? Let me, let me tell you guys. Do you know the test? You want to know the test? Do you know the test of how you know you've done this? How you know you're being a faithful stranger to this world? Faithful resident alien. How do you know that you've done this right? Check this out. This is the test. It's that when you live out your life following after Jesus, when you do that, you will be extraordinarily offensive and at the same time, incredibly attracted to those around you at the same time. If you truly say, I'm going to live out the fundamental truth of what Christ has called me to do, you will be both incredibly attractive and extraordinarily offensive at the same time. And this is a universal across the culture. It's not, I'm not even just talking about here in America. Across the culture. Let me, let me give you an example. If you're in the Middle East... If you're in the Middle East, Middle East would look at Christians and say what? They would look at our thoughts on sex and marriage. It's like, I like that. Very attractive. That's how we do it. But then they would look at the way we talk about our enemies and forgiveness. And they would say what? That's scandalous. How do you forgive your enemies and pray for those who've hurt you? How do you restore those who have wronged you and messed with you? 
they will be, this is shameful. Because Eastern culture is a shame culture. So they don't talk about forgiveness. They don't deal with forgiveness. They don't like forgiveness. It's a shame culture. If you wrong them, then you, guess what? You have to pay back. But in Christianity, if, they have, if you have been wronged by them, what happens? The Bible tells you, forgive. And pray for those who have hurt you. We don't fit into any culture. Western culture. Here in the West, people like the idea of forgiveness. They don't live it, but they like the idea of Christian forgiveness, right? Love people. Love them. Right? They, they, they love the idea of Christians, what Christian says about forgiveness, but listen to what they say about sex and marriage. Listen to how they respond to Christian's idea of sex and marriage. It's what? Crazy, it's offensive, and it's scandalous. Do you know why I know the Bible is true? Do you know why I give my life to this truth? Because if this Bible is merely written by men, it should fit some culture. Some culture should, somebody should fully grasp it, right? But the fact that the Bible is offensive and attractive to everyone, the fact that the Bible speaks into every culture tells me that what is in here is from a divine source and not just merely from a source of men. The truth of this word is inspired by God. Because if it was inspired by men, men will write it to fit a cultural norm and a cultural narrative. But if God writes it, he speaks to all of humanity. And you know it's because whether you're east or west, the Bible is offensive to you, one form or another. The true test that you're living as strangers, exiles, resident aliens, is that you will be extraordinarily offensive and incredibly attractive at the same time. If you find in your Christian life that everybody loves you and nothing you say is offensive to anyone, I can guarantee you you're not speaking Christianity. You're not living out your Christian faith. But I also can guarantee you if you live out your Christian faith and everybody hates you and offended by you, you're probably not living out your Christian faith either. Because Christianity is both and, not either or. We are both extraordinarily offensive and incredibly attractive at the same time. So here it is. We're strangers, exiles, resident aliens in this world. It's not our home. It's not our home. Therefore, the way we live in this world is to be incredibly attractive and yet extraordinarily offensive. But how do I have the power to do this? How do I have the energy to do this? How do I have the conviction and the courage to live this out? The answer is Jesus. Let me tell you about the gospel. Let me tell you about the good news of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. To God's elects. Strangers, exiles, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. When you have been grasped by the sheer knowledge and truth of what Jesus has done for you, you were chosen by the Father, you were changed and sanctified by the Spirit because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. When you grasp that, when Jesus becomes the reality of your life and what he has done for you becomes a reality of who you are, you begin to have the courage to say, you know what, 
I'm going to stand by these principles. I'm going to mature. I'm going to grow. I'm not going to stay silent. I am going to live humbly and unapologetically. I am going to be as attractive to the world around me, but also I'm going to be extraordinarily offensive because what I stand for is true. Jesus was the ultimate exile, was he not? He was the ultimate stranger. He was the ultimate resident alien. He was home. He was in the bosom of the Father. He was dwelling with God Almighty, and yet he was cast here. And while he was here, he was a wanderer. He didn't make his home anywhere. The Bible says, he said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have uh, nests, but the Son of Man have nowhere to lay his head. He was a wanderer. He was not someone who has made his home anywhere. Even in his death, he died outside the city, away from people, away from the world. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He got the ultimate exile that we deserve in order to bring us truly home. And only when, listen guys, only when you see him dying that big death for you, when you recognize it, it was completely for you, will you truly have courage to be extraordinarily offensive and incredibly attractive. Let me give, let me give you a story. It'll hit home here. So my mom, uh, she does manicures. Anybody, anyone's mom does manicures? Ma man, yeah, right? That's how she used to pay rent. My father passed away when I was around 12, and so it was a one-income family, raising one kid, right? And I remember the first job I got, it was in 10th grade, summer, going into 11th. My first job, I was an assistant in an office. Three months, right? $1,200 for those three months, okay? Maybe it's not sounding a lot today, but back then it was a lot, okay? 1200 I got it from the city. I, I, I applied for the position. It was some random job. I got to work in this office. It was pretty cool. And, you know, here I am, this dumb 10th uh, grader going to 11th grade. My mom, you know, jokingly says, hey, you know, you should give me half your paycheck. And I was like, I can't write, you know. Half my paycheck? Maybe I'll buy you dinner, mom. Like, half my paycheck? You're crazy, you know. I think I worked for this. I worked hard for this, mom. You know, but she, she, she didn't, like, demand it. But, of course, my grandma chimes in and Crazy lady. She said, how could you, you ungrateful child, not give your mom anything? I said, well, I'm, 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 why would you guys say that? So now all of a sudden my, my, my guilty conscience kicked in, and I feel like I have to now, right? So I'm, 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 I'm working all summer, and I'm thinking, man, do I really have to give her half my paycheck, right? $600, that's a lot of money for a kid. And then towards the end of summer, I had to deliver something to my mom's workplace. I've never been to her workplace. She worked as a manicure for 29 years to this day, right? After my father passed away, she worked from five days a week to seven days a week, right? First time I ever walked in there. I've never been to her, her manicure's place, uh, to, her, to her nail shop. First time for that summer, I walked in. And when the first thing you walk in, if you've ever been to a nail shop, it's just the chemical-inducing coma that you get, right? It's just, you're just sitting there, and you're thinking, like, what is this? And you're, like, in this haze, and you're like, Mom, where are you? And you're just walking around, like, how can you live in this, right? And there she is, just sitting there, you know, painting nails, doing, um, Pedicures for some lady and massaging, and you know, I sat down next to her, and you know, she's introducing me to this her clients. Oh, this is my son, and I'm like, hi, and I'm sitting there and watching her, and I'm watching her fingers, and I, I notice all of her um, fingerprints are gone, right? All of her fingerprints are gone. All the years of acetone, right? Use it, and it's just gone. You can't even find her fingerprint. You know, to this day, her iPhone, she can't unlock it because <laughs> the fingerprint doesn't work for her, right? Oh, it's hilarious. No, not too hilarious. It's kind of sad, right? But I'm sitting there, and I'm watching my mom work for the first time, realizing for the first time, being grasped for the first time, 
She worked as a single mother to raise a kid in a one-income family seven days a week. And I remember coming home that, week, that day and I was thinking, how selfish, how foolish am I to even complain about $600? How foolish am I to feel guilty and feel like I have to do something when I've been grasped by the reality that she has sat there for years in and out after my father passed away to make sure that we can eat and have a roof over our head. So that have to turns into a what? To a want to. It's just natural. At the end of the summer, mom, you can have half, right? 600, it's plenty. It was 600 more than I had last year, mom, right? 600, I can take Trisha to the prom and homecoming. Easy, no problem. It's only $50 a ticket back then, right? Easy. And in the same way, if you recognize Jesus Christ paying that full death for you, until you've grasped that in your heart of hearts, until you've come to the reality that he left the eternal throne to sit upon the sacrifice of the cross for you, to pay the death that you deserve because you could not pay it yourself. Until he has saved your soul to bring you home. Until that truth has hit your heart, you're not going to be able to have the courage to live as resident aliens in this world. You're either going to compromise or buy into it. Because when you know what your God has done for you, when you know and what the price in which he paid to bring you home, how selfish and how foolish would it be for you to say, you died a big death. I can give up being yelled at on social media for standing up for you by people I don't even know. You died the big death. I can deal with fighting for the life of an unborn child in spite of what everyone else is yelling and screaming about. You die the big death. I can die a little death. Jesus died. He was exiled. He wandered. He bled, kicked out of the city, on the cross for me, for you. Until that reality grasps you, until it hits you, you will not have the courage. But when it does, when it does, and I pray that it will, and I know that it will, when the reality of Christ on the cross has grasped your heart, I know that you will have the courage to speak the courage to stand, the courage to grow, the courage to be mature, the courage to let the fires refine you to be the citizens of the kingdom in which you were made and born to be in. This is not your home. You are resident aliens here. So live, live to be incredibly attractive to this world, but extraordinarily offensive to it as well. Let's pray.